Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, taking companies public, you know, everything that you can think of. And he's done it multiple times. In fact, uh, he's done it very successfully so multiple times. He's built uh, three companies that have become unicorns. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit from his experience. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Ralph Wenzel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. It's a pleasure. So originally born in East Berlin in 1979 as part of a family that was very active in the political side of things. Uh, so give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, life was uh, very, very different uh, back in the days. Um, I was born in East Berlin, literally grew up behind the, uh, the Berlin Wall which separated people, which separated systems, um, which separated um, basically consciousness, beliefs, um, and, and many other things. So it was an anti-human, um, anti, anti-social um, type of um, construct that was, that was built. And that, was, that I was reminded at every single day, being able to see the other side of Berlin from uh, literally like our apartment um, and always seeing the contrast between how we lived in East Berlin um, versus to how people were living in West Berlin. And then when the wall came down in 1989 and Germany got uh, reunited um, after the reunification, people moved together, um, people rebuilt relationships um, and people embraced a completely, completely different level of freedom. I think that must have been uh, to a certain extent also um, a moment of realization and a moment for many people like myself to say, why don't we embrace that freedom that we're being given? Um, let's not take freedom for granted. Let's not take it for granted that we're able to craft, to create, to build. Um, and I think looking back, that must have given uh, at least like a very strong impulse for um, later on starting to, to, to build my own companies as well. So computer science out of all things, you know, that's why you ended up studying. Why computer science? Well, I was growing up in a, very uh, strong and very intense, um, was born into a very political family. 
um, that basically had political mandates um, in 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 different in different parts and in in, in different directions, and hence political movements um, and everything that, especially it, Germany has been through historically, um, has been uh, exposed to a lot of basically subject opinions, beliefs, and 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 philosophies whereby many of them were 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 failures and were were historic mistakes. And hence, I wanted to get exposed to something that is that is more binary, that is more scientific, that is scientifically proven, that consists of zero and one, and that doesn't consist of like a subjective interpretation of whether something is 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 right or wrong. So I was I was having a strong uh, willingness to study something that is more again scientific, more technological, and at the same time. Uh, the end or the mid '90s to to towards the end '90s, um, where an era where um, internet technology and internet overall was at its at its very beginning, um, and had shown to many people that were exposed to the intersection of a of a free world, uh, the new free world that evolved um, after the reunited Germany, in combination with the new technology that uh, the internet was was hinting at and was giving a first sight at um, was a perfect combination for me to say there is something incredibly interesting uh, starting, which is the internet. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to do something that is more scientific and hence um, studying computer science was um, for me personally, at that point of time, the right response to um, everything that was going on in the world. So talk to us about, because obviously, you know, while you were doing computer science and, and you started to see like how you could, you know, engineer things and, you know, the use of technology and things like that, eventually you get together with a group of friends and, and you get into the venture world. So how did that happen? Walk us through that. Yeah, I think a few things just evolved um, by, by, by coincidence. But um, during my studies, um, together with friends of mine from university, we already started to build technology while studying. We started to program content management systems, uh, websites, and and uh, many different other technology components and and software solutions, and we got into selling them. And we 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 realized well there is um, value being created um, if you code. There's value being created if you uh, bring source code together. You make it work. You create a digital product that makes life easier. That uh, allows you to organize and structure things and 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 deal with information differently. And the recognition of being able to uh, generate value out of that um, was was a first experience um, and a first milestone that made us realize, wow, there is something that is not only scientific, but there's value creation, there's economical value creation attached to it. Um, and at that point of time, at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, there were only like a very, very few groups of, of, of entrepreneurs that were looking into starting something in and around the internet. Um, and at that point of time, uh, technology talents were um, even more rare than uh, what they are today. And hence, um, basically, those students that were exposed to a computer science degree <clears throat> or that were basically in the process of getting a computer science degree were often being approached, were often being reached out to by uh, those business people that came from like uh, uh, the interesting business schools that were basically trying to build something, but they didn't have the technological capabilities. and hence. The group of friends that I've met in the early 2000s was uh, a group of people that came from business school, had an idea, 
and they were looking for uh, someone that um, basically was exposed to technology, new technology, um, and could lead the uh, technological developments for, for, at that point of time, still the idea at incubation. Because in Jamba, what were you guys doing with Jamba? Well, Jamba was uh, supposed to become a basically company that would serve mobile network operators and would allow mobile network operators to monetize and to create value and revenue out of the so-called value-added services. So for everything that is not voice, right? We all know that mobile network operators, at least back in the days, made uh, the majority, if not all, of their money by simple, simple phone calls. Um, and the evolution of, of, of data networks made it possible to use mobile network operator structures to also monetize um, other contents than just voice, um, be it ringtones, be it games, be it news alerts, be it horoscopes, be it um, basically different applications. But there was no technology solution for it. Um, there was no experience on, on, on how that could get uh, accomplished. And back in the days, in the early 2000s, Japan was still like one of the countries that in terms of like mobile services and uh, mobile data solutions was uh, the front runner and the most innovative country in that regards. And Japan had shown us uh, back in the days what is possible in terms of services that can get um, basically distributed uh, and commercialized and promoted through the, the, the mobile networks. And as Jamba was meant to become that type of company that would allow mobile network operators to monetize on these value-added services, to create a platform which allows to offer mobile contents, news alerts, games, and so on. Um, and then later on, uh, apart from the B2B business, um, the business would have pivoted and adjusted or opened up uh, a separate B2C channel, which ultimately ended up being the core part of the business uh, of offering mobile contents, ringtones, games, applications to customers directly uh, through um, all kind of like direct response type of advertising. Um, which was a proposition that we expanded into more than 40 countries, including China, the US, all of Europe, Latin America, and many other countries of the world. Ultimately, a big success story before the era of smartphones, which obviously disrupted everything. Um, and um, uh, that success story was something that we could uh, monetize on when, when exiting it and when selling it to the combination of News Corp and, and VeriSign only after a few years of, uh, of having started that business. I saw that north of 200 million, it was reported. So uh, really good stuff. Now, in this case, you know, it was obviously um, a strategic uh, buyer uh, on the next one that you did, which was a uh, money bookers, which was the first uh, e-wallet in Europe. You know, it's a, it was a different, uh, you know, uh, approach on getting the transaction done because it was more on the, with a financial acquirer, with a private equity firm. Obviously, they, they you know, great success, the company, you know, ended up uh, being sold and, and, you know, publicly listed. But I guess, I guess the questions here that I have, you know, is what were you guys essentially doing there with money bookers and how was that transaction different from what you experienced with Jamba, for example? I think there were similarities as well as differences. Similarities in, the, in, in, in respect to money bookers, which later on basically rebranded uh, into Paysafe. Um, being a proposition that was sitting on a completely new technological evolution, which was the possibility to create um, an online variation of a banking service, of a payment service, um, a digital alternative to things like Western Union 
um, and other money transfer or, 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 or money remittance businesses. And in fact, Moneybookers being the first company in Europe that uh, was getting, getting access to the so-called e-money license. The first time an e-money license um, got issued at that point of time by the British government um, back in, um, I think it was like 2000, 2007, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But um, different to the Jumper business and um, also to many other businesses, you build businesses with a technological conviction, with a conviction on the product, with a conviction of what the product can do and how the product can impact everyone's lives and how a product can um, create customer adoption, loyalty, retention, and ultimately generate uh, sustainable value. However, financially, and in terms of the necessary financing and uh, exit possibilities or refinancing possibilities, you have to always navigate and adjust yourself to the, to the environment. Um, the early 2000s were very, very different to um, basically kind of like, like, like years like, I don't know, 2006, 2007, and then everyone knows that 2008 has been an incredibly difficult year uh, with a big financial crisis. And in fact, we attempted to IPO Moneybookers in 2008, um, but had to pull the IPO plans one day before listing um, given the uh, severe financial crisis um, that happened um, with uh, a lot, uh, basically the entire stock market uh, collapsing. And we had to afterwards find a way to uh, navigate our business, continue building the business in a very profitable way, in a more profitable way, without the possibility to gaining access to more financing. Um, but shortly after, um, there has been the opportunity um, to exit and sell the business to a private equity firm that both ensured um, capital into the company to further build on the value proposition, as well as creating uh, an exit path for early shareholders, founder management, uh, and others involved. So um, the, 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 the business was similarly uh, technological, um, technologically um, initiated and with a strong technological uh, motivation. However, access to financing, um, access to an exit opportunity, uh, and also the way how we had to navigate uh, financially uh, and financing and fundraising-wise has been very, very different. So then after this transaction is done, you decide to pack up the bags and go to Singapore. Why Singapore? I think similar to the other businesses, um, I've always looked into what creates an opportunity for a specific value proposition for specific products vis-a-vis a specific geography where the adoption for, for, for that type of business model might be larger, might be more probable um, and, and of, a, of a more attractive and of a bigger market opportunity. And back in the days um, in countries like uh, the UK or also the United States, there would have been already uh, food delivery services, online food delivery services, companies such as Grubhub or Just Eat, that would have aggregated restaurants and menus onto their site um, and allowed customers to buy and, and, and select dishes to get them delivered to your doorstep without, however, taking care of the full user experience, without controlling the last mile, without uh, getting involved on the logistical element but acting purely as, as classified as marketplace type of businesses. So we back in the days thought um, there's a way to do that better. 
Uh, food delivery is, is a reality. People have been using food delivery for decades, if not even for centuries. Flyer-based, mostly paper-based. Everyone still recalls the amount of like restaurants, sushi and pizza flyers that we would have found in our letterbox every single morning. So food delivery has been a, a reality for a long period of time. The convenience of getting things delivered is something that is part of a very, very large secular trend. It's a mass market opportunity. However, existing technology players had not resolved for the full user experience yet because there was not, they were not getting involved in logistics and really controlling the experience end to end and ensuring like a faster and more reliable service proposition. And second of all, that proposition, the online food delivery proposition has not been available in other parts of the world. And cross-checking a little bit that thesis against market opportunities throughout the world, I realized that especially in Southeast Asia, a market that, is, uh, that consists of a lot of like um, very dense or, or densely populated cities, a market that is very food exposed, that lives food as part of the culture, a market where um, the convenience and the habit of um, ordering food for delivery is even more exposed than, uh, for instance, in Western Europe, the non-existence of other players and the opportunity to create a better platform that would not only allow ordering online, but that would also build the logistical infrastructure behind. All of those factors together made us um, launch and, and, and build and then also expand the business initially throughout uh, Southeast Asia under the Food Panda brand. Um, and um, after having reached like market leadership in, in, in a lot of those markets, we would have expanded further west um, into markets such as the Middle East, Eastern Europe, um, even Russia back in the days. Um, until we kind of like got back to Germany, Berlin, uh, where we then uh, basically found the opportunity to join forces with another company um, under the Delivery Hero umbrella, which later on became one of the largest food delivery platforms worldwide. And with the opportunity of the then consolidated business to IPO and to um, use the IPO exit as one of the basically most successful exits um, of um, in 2017, when we publicly publicly listed the company. Yeah, I mean, when the company was publicly listed, you know, it was originally valued at 2 billion and then 2 billion euros. Uh, and then upon the listing, you know, the market priced it, you know, twice as much at 4 billion euros, uh, raising 1 billion euros at the offering, which is uh, really remarkable. So I guess on, on, on that journey, what do you think were the, the most important ingredients, the three most important ingredients for that to happen? I mean, when it came to, to the keys of the success of, of, of this business, you know, what would you say those were attributed to? I think one of the keys of success for that business and, in fact, for many other businesses, maybe even all of the businesses that we have built uh, since then and up until today, is the fact that we um, expanded relatively rapidly into many different countries of the world to test and validate uh, to which extent your conviction, your value proposition, your, your, your product that you have built um, generates adoption, generates value, generates growth, and also generates sustainable or profitable growth. You can only model um, the, the probability of success to a very limited degree via Excel sheets. And at the end of the day, and especially for highly innovative companies in the technology segments, you have to test, you have to test, you have to learn, you have to iterate. 
you sometimes go two steps forward to actually go three steps back um, and then to start all over again. And starting with a broad mandate, whether it was on the food delivery side, on the payment side, um, or before, even uh, with the jumper business, going into many different markets of the world with uh, limited costs, um, testing the waters, comparing countries, comparing cities, comparing customer groups, gives you access to um, accelerated learning, gives you access to uh, a lot of data, and allows you to then pivot and adjust towards the channel, the country, the city, or the intersection of customers, markets, cultural environments, and product propositions that um, obviously could theoretically still fail, but the probability of failure is being significantly reduced if you start with a very broad funnel and then you tailor it down to uh, the segment and that part of the business that um, performs best. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. Now for you, it was interesting because after you completed the chapter with, uh, with the Liberty Hero here and the company went public, then <clears throat> you decided to go <clears throat> to the other side of the table. And you essentially became a managing partner at the SoftBank Group, working there alongside the Marcelo Clauri, launching their uh, funds that they did there in Latin America, where you guys were deploying $5 billion or so. I guess, what kind of perspective did it give you to be on the other side of the table here? I think when you start building companies, you always build companies together with a team, together with partners, together with peers. Um, it's never the responsibility of a CEO, COO, of a senior manager, but successful companies are only getting built with very experienced, broad, very talented, and very complementary management teams. And in fact, um, management teams that are rather bigger and broader, and to the extent possible, you have to be on eye level. You have to be partners. And I think while doing that, we realized, um, and I realized that there's uh, a lot of great people out there, a lot of great people with great mindsets. And in fact, we built companies that did not only consist of very strong, very complementary management teams, but we also built businesses with thousands of, of, of people working as part of those businesses. So we had in some of our companies, thousands, if not even tens of thousands of, of, of people that are working uh, from countries like I don't know, Taiwan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Argentina, Canada, 
Sweden, Poland, and many others. And they've been part of a very entrepreneurial mission. They were part of creating something new. They were part of starting something from the ground. And many of them, um, throughout their individual professional journey, decided to build their own company. At one point of time, uh, they left. Once they had accomplished certain milestones for themselves, they left and they, they, they took the learning experience as part of our companies as a motivation, as an experience to then build their own businesses. And given that I knew these people, I, I, I wanted to support them. And here and there, selectively decided to um, not only support uh, mentally and with advice and, and, and expertise, but also support them financially. So I started to become like an angel investor uh, very early on, now more than 15 years ago since we uh, exited our first company, to support others to create something similar to what I am creating to be part of that ecosystem, to enjoy the beauty of building for innovation and for customer convenience and for making the world become an easier and more convenient and more sustainable and a better place. Um, and hence, I got pretty much exposed to that. And hence, um, when SoftBank opened up the opportunity uh, for me to, to join them, SoftBank at that point of time, the largest technology investor in the world, it was obviously a great opportunity to get in touch, not only to those basically entrepreneurs that were part of your own network, but basically to some of the biggest entrepreneurs of the planet that have built um, massive companies um, and that allow you to basically access an experience and expertise level, but also a boldness in terms of how much they think they can impact everyone's life and and um and world's destiny um that it was an an incredibly appealing uh proposition um and a very attractive um opportunity for for me to join the other side of not building but being able to work with many many others that are building uh trying to support them trying to learn from them trying to bring them together trying to build partnerships um, making investments, uh, supporting them to grow, evolve, and mature, um, and um, and that across many different geographies, but with a particular focus on Latin America, which has been um, since I was a child, um, and having lived in Latin America for a long period of time myself, has been a continent that has grown very close to my to my heart, um, and a continent that I always wanted to do more business in that I could potentially imagine live in at one point of time. And hence the particular focus um, of SoftBank to Latin America um, through the SoftBank Latin America Fund at that point of time, and probably like still up until today, the largest technology fund that ever existed um, determined to Latin America was for me then the perfect personal opportunity. And obviously, you know, one thing led to the next and SoftBank ended up becoming an investor in your, you know, latest company, because as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So tell us about Joker. How does uh, Joker, you know, the idea come knocking and at what point do you decide it's time to uh, get going at it again? Yeah, I think given the experience and given the time at the SoftBank Latin America Fund, having worked with many different um, Latin American entrepreneurs, but also understanding inside out the uh, the landscape, uh, the opportunities, the 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 strengths and weaknesses of the Latin American ecosystem, and the opportunities there. 
in a very, very different cultural environment as compared to Western Europe or the US or many other geographies of the world, um, exposed me and, 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 and the rest of the team that was working with me uh, on the SoftBank side and that has been working with me um, basically for a long period of time, also in other companies, to the opportunity, similar to what we have done on the food delivery side, to create an e-commerce company overall that can be faster, even more convenient, even more sustainable, and even more personalized than the likes of Amazon or Mercado Libre, to name um, a Latin American equivalent. So on the one hand side, there was the conviction really that all existing e-commerce solutions are a little bit stuck in the, maybe not in the 90s, but maybe in the 2010s or so, that have not adjusted to the need for faster delivery, more reliability, more personalization, more tailored and more local brands, and higher sustainability standards. So on the one hand side, the conviction that a different and a better Amazon is possible from a product proposition. And on the other hand side, the gap in the Latin American uh, market environment um, of a well-fulfilling e-commerce experience. Again, similar to back in the days when we built food delivery in Southeast Asia or across uh, the Asian continent, where we thought there's a lack of offering, there's the opportunity to create a great platform that is better than the platforms in other parts of the world but where the platform could meet a big market opportunity. So similar to that, we started um, a next generation e-commerce company, initially focused on groceries, similar to how Amazon started with books a few years ago, or like initially, now it's already like, I don't know, 20 years ago. So a next generation e-commerce proposition that aims to be faster, more personalized, more sustainable, more profitable, more locally adjusted to what people really need and when they need it um, to generate efficiency through their thesis exactly. What is it that customers need and when? To build data algorithms that look into which type of customers do what type of SKUs at what point of time to the hour of the day um, and build it in a vertically integrated way that allows us to build and control and manage the entire user experience from procurement directly from farmers or producers managing our own stock and inventory and our own warehouses up to delivering the specific product to the customer's doorstep. So 100% control of the end-to-end -end journey. Um, and we started that business in Brazil as our initial market, um, a market that probably belongs to or is nowadays one of the remaining, last remaining underpenetrated uh, emerging markets that is um, basically creating a huge opportunity to build a, a multi-billion company. We expanded also in other markets of the world. We went into other Latin American markets. We went, uh, we tested the waters in Europe. Uh, we had a small business in the US as well, similar to what we have done before, broadening the funnel, going into many countries as possible in a digestible way, learning, adjusting, thinking about like, where does this proposition yield the highest return not only from a short-term, but also from a long-term perspective, where do you solve a problem in, um, um, in the most feasible way? Um, and uh, that uh, led us then to the conclusion that Brazil, as one of the largest domestic markets worldwide, is the market that we should exclusively focus on. And so we adjusted the, the business to be 100% um, focused on Brazil, uh, where we're thriving, where we're 
growing still by 15% month over month, where we are um, on a clear path to profitability, where we have been able to um, uh, conduct a new financing round, even despite the more challenging macroeconomic times, being now fully financed to profitability. Um, and uh, we have a great team on the ground um, that, is, um, that is building for, indeed, uh, a next era of e-commerce. And you guys have raised quite a bit of money. You know, it was uh, reported too that uh, the last uh, round, you know, which happened, I think it was, you guys, it was announced in February that the company was valued at $1.3 So, I mean, really, really spectacular stuff. Now, you guys have been raising on a, on a tough market too. So, I think that that has given you some insights. And there's probably a lot of founders that are listening right now and wondering how the market is out there for raising money. What can you tell them? I think raising money is um, something that is always incredibly difficult and um, which um, is becoming like even more difficult if the, if the macroeconomic environment such as today changes and uh, imposes its difficulties on, on investors and, and, and the overall ecosystem. I think what we have found and what I found over the last more than 20 years of, of, of building businesses is Number one, um, the, the benefit, the strength um, of, of building personal relationships. I think nothing goes further and, and nothing is more impactful and nothing is more powerful than building strong personal relationships with key investors, with potential strategic partners, potentially with part of your customers as well, and obviously also with your own um, employees and your partners. And we have found that especially those um, also investors that you had built the strongest relationship with, that you have uh, created trust, understanding, appreciation, um, um, like mutual trust, appreciation and, and uh, for, um, and that you indeed had like a strong personal relationship, that those are the type of investors uh, or partners that would support you in, in, the, in the even most difficult times. So having investors needs to be, to the, to, the, to the degree possible, something that is built up on strong personal relationships. There are those type of investors that are rather transactional. And obviously, most investors per se would be just transactional. They would invest based on certain criteria. Potentially, they sit on your boards, they give advice, they participate in board meetings, but they're always usually applying like a financial raster. Right, a financial metric on 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 how they deal with uh, every respective company and 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 founder and management team. However, if you go beyond that point, and if you select those that you think you can build a very trusted and indeed like personal relationship with, that personal relationship creates then, in the most difficult times, that level of understanding, appreciation, and commitment that others potentially do not have. And personal relationships, yes, help you to navigate very difficult times. That's number one. The second thing is that we have found that um, there's always in every business, there's strategic interest and there should be strategic interest. And um, strategic interest can be leveraged and, and, and utilized for investment purposes as well. Because you would have a key supplier. You would have a key customer. You would have potentially a key competitor in a different country. You would have a company um, that is doing something very similar to what you're doing, 
um, connecting with those, looking into, um, looking into what can be accomplished together, what type of partnerships can be pulled off, and potentially then using those type of partnerships to deduct um, an investment relationship out of it as well has been a second very important, um, important avenue. Um, and we have done that with many different companies by having partners, suppliers, operational, um, basically partnerships in place, um, try to build more and more of those like operational partnerships. Also here, very important to explore the personal angle, the angle of a personal trusted relationship, um, but operational partnerships that can then potentially be um, led to investment partnerships as well, which in combination with like strong relationships with certain like financial investors allow you to navigate um, your financing needs or fulfilling your financing needs sometimes in the even more difficult uh, macroeconomic times. So, Ralph, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Joker is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think we're living in a world where a lot of the day-to-day -day activities, a lot of the things that are surrounding us, how we consume or purchase foods, how we fulfill our daily needs, how we resolve on our mobility requirements, how we resolve on um, anything that, that, that is important for, for a human being, the basic needs. I think all of that is um, still unsustainable, as we know. It's um, uh, very manual and often like very, very inefficient. And I think the world and Joker aims to be part of it, um, has the opportunity to get significantly more data-driven, automated, more efficient and more sustainable. I think we don't need technology and invest billions to bring us to Mars. I think we don't need to have innovations such as like a self-building chair, but we need to look into how do we resolve more efficiently and more sustainable on our basic needs of um, billions of people that live, that live on this planet, where I think the intersection of data and technology, which some people refer to as artificial intelligence, but at the end of the day, it's the intersection of technology and data um, can have like a, an incredible contribution. So I think um, Joker works at its core with data and technology, trying to predict what customers really need and when and where. And organizing supply chain and procurement around it. I think that in essence is something that I could envision for other industries as well. And I think for entrepreneurs of, 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 of today's generation or the future, I think it's not necessarily, even though it might be appealing to look into technologies of a different universe, but I think we have to resolve on this universe. And I think just taking day-to-day -day use cases, but looking underneath and seeing how can we disrupt on what's sitting on a layer in between. I think over the last 20 years, we've been rather resolving through technology on the user interfacing layer, right? We looked into how can we better communicate through WhatsApp, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and other means of communication. We looked into how can we better advertise with Google, with like marketplaces? How can we better sell and distribute? 
uh, to customers. So we looked pretty much over the last 20 years, 25 years since the beginning of internet into resolving on the more superficial level. I think the opportunity for the next 10 to 20 years is now going one step further and resolving technologically on the, on the bucket underneath, what sits underneath different use cases. How can we resolve on business automation? How can we resolve on supply chain? How can we resolve on business, uh, um, basically other production, industrial, agriculture um, uh, type of use cases through the use of data or the intersection of data and technology? So we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past real quick with a lens of reflection. You know, imagine if you were to uh, be able to go back in time into a time machine and you're able to go back to that moment where you were studying computer science and wondering, you know, what to do, you know, on the venture side of things. And you're able to sit down with that younger Ralph. And you're able to give that younger Ralph one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and, and, and why, given what you know now? Maybe, especially in the European ecosystem, um, we tend to be a little bit more conservative. We tend to be more afraid. And I wonder... What is it that we should be afraid of? Um, we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of basically not succeeding. We're, not, we're, we're, we're afraid of not having access to means of financing or to be able to afford our living. I've come across my own journey and I've come across the journey of many other fellow entrepreneurs. And I think there's no reason to be afraid. We initially, and when I was much younger, um, looked into the building of businesses in an extremely non-bullish way, very careful, very conservative. Um, I'm not saying necessarily more profitable, but rather like smaller. Let's test it. Let's see whether that works. Let's be careful how much we want to disrupt. Let's be careful how much we want to change. Um, and many other entrepreneurs, as well as ourselves, our own team, um, and me personally, have proven ourselves over the last 20 years, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, don't be afraid of failure because failure and, and, and success is the, is the same thing, just um, being looked at from a different angle. It's two different interpretations of the same thing, which is the creation, the crafting, the evolution of things. So if I would be able to go back, I would potentially tell myself, don't be afraid. Think bigger, think bolder. You get the support, you get the people. Um, nothing is ever easy. Everything is a fight. You need to fight incredibly hard to make things work. You have to give everything to it. You have to work the majority of your time, especially for the, basically, some ecosystems in the world. There's an opportunity to think bigger, to innovate bolder, um, and to really think about like disruptive solutions, which is, by the way, what the world needs. The world doesn't need adjustments. The world really needs, um, basically bigger moves and bigger changes in order to rescue itself. I love that. Ralph, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? That's a good question, but I would say LinkedIn uh, is a great way to get in touch with me. Um, I don't have a Twitter channel, um, but um, yeah, feel free to reach out via LinkedIn and um, happy to connect. Amazing. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. 
And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.